for people that don't know, you're an author, you're a cookbook uh, writer, you're on TV, and you have this awesome brand called Hardcore Carnivore. So what year did you start the, uh, the company? Uh, started in 2016 is when we brought out our first seasoning, which was the black seasoning, the black seasoning. So, Mm -hmm. well, let me rewind real quick. How did you get to Austin? What, what made you want to land in Austin? Uh, it was just like that. Even back then, you know, now it's extremely popular, but even when I visited the first time, which was over 15 years ago, um, it was just a really cool city, um, to kind of stop at and check out as a tourist. And that's how I ended up here the first time. Very cool. So are, do you have like manufacturing facilities in, in the Austin area or is it kind of spread uh, We out? have manufacturing facilities outside of Houston and outside of Fort Worth. Very cool. What stores are your are your seasonings in right now? We are in Bass Pro Cabela's, Academy, HEB, Bucky's, um, lots of great independent stores all around the country as well. So uh, lots of great options. There. Oh, you're, you're everywhere. We like to be, yeah. That's awesome. So, what was uh, talk about the the like how you started it and how did you become? Were you always into cooking? Did your mom cook? How did you get introduced into to cooking? And it's very you don't see a whole lot of women in the barbecue world, so it's very unique that um, you found this art and and now you're able to make a business out of it. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, I always loved eating, so that's always <laughs> a good start. Um, and I was just never really confident enough to cook a steak at home when I was growing up. Like, I didn't really know how to choose meat at the grocery store. I didn't really know which steak was which. And I certainly didn't know how to grill. And when I came to Texas for the first time, I went to Lockhart because everyone's like, oh, you got to try Texas barbecue when you're in Texas. And I had it and it was amazing. And um, that sort of led me to want to eat more barbecue and keep coming back and visiting Texas. And, and learning about how barbecue was made at the same time I inadvertently learned more about meat, including purchasing the raw stuff. Because I was like, why isn't brisket in America anything like a brisket in Australia? And so um, I ended up finding out like, oh, it's actually not that difficult. Oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, all these little bits and pieces that kind of fall into place. And that's why I ended up sharing on my social media with people. Oh, that's very cool. Have you seen, or, I mean, when I travel to other states, I noticed that the cuts of meats just in compared to Texas and maybe Ohio, I have family that live in Ohio, just looking at the meats is completely different. Um, have you seen the same? Um, I mean, yeah. And you know, it's, it's very, very different, uh, from country to country. So the French have one way, the Brazilians have another way that they do it. And they're all called different names. Australia is different to the U S but certainly regionally within the U.S., you know, like tri-tip used to only be popular in California, and now we're starting to see it in Texas more. And um, packer briskets are very common in Texas, but were harder to find in other areas. And it really has a lot to do with supply and demand, and also what what regional styles are. Is Texas like the number one state for for meat? Or I mean, there, I like to think so. Yeah, is there another state that comes close? I know Louisiana. You always hear about like St. Louis barbecue, but is I I don't know. Selfishly, I probably would lean more towards Texas because everyone. So I work for a global corporation, and everyone talks about Texas barbecue. So I'd have to believe yeah. Texas is is leading the way. Yes, I think we are leading the way. In, we're definitely leading the way in barbecue. We're also. Uh, I believe have the most head of cattle out of every state in the U S 
which helps as well um, because those things are very interconnected. Mm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, you know, we're starting to see a lot of boundaries, like regional boundaries get dropped. It used to be that there was very four definitive barbecue styles in the U.S. And now um, you can go to Brooklyn and get amazing like they'll do Texas style brisket, but North Carolina style pork and they'll kind of cherry pick it. But for me, um, especially being more beef centric, Texas is where it's at. Where did barbecue start from? Where did that originate from? Well, they say, I mean, the concept of cooking over live fire obviously has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, but, um, barbecue as we know it today, Texas barbecue in particular has roots, with the meat markets in Texas. So a lot of German Czech immigrants would um, start these meat markets, effectively butcher shops, because especially those coming from the, the German heritage, they have a huge relationship with sausage making and butcher butchery and things of that nature. So they often ran the meat markets. Um, and uh, it, it was said that when um, uh, either they were looking for ways to kind of value add on these cuts that weren't being sold so they would like throw a brisket in and treat it in the same way as they would their smoked sausage which again is a very old world european concept um and there was another reason there was sorry there was another um yeah there was another reason which was a lot of these small towns also had um uh, limited seasonal workers and when the seasonal workers would come into let's say pick crops uh there wouldn't be enough food joints in the town to feed them. So the butcher shop would sort of have to pivot and 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 then sort of grab a sleeve of crackers and grab some pickles and sort of make a meal out of it. And and because they started in butcher shops, that's why it's still sold by the pound today in that very kind of like pared back rustic tray style. How, how much do you get into the way meat is sourced? I you're you're your um your website and your your Instagram account. I love the information that you put out. I was just watching videos before we hopped on the call. Mm-hmm. Is do you dive off into um how meat is raised or is it just kind of you get what you get? I mean, I, I'm I, I'm very very uh, well educated across the board on how that meat is raised now, so I can make really informed decisions which is, I think, what's really empowering about a consumer. That's what drives a lot of the uh, content that I make is just to give people information to me- to stop making it a big, a big scary thing. So, um, I, I mean, are you asking what I personally like? Yeah, to I mean, like, I mean, for your for your own family, what do you cook? Like, do you buy like there's white oak pastures, there's like forces of nature meats? What do you personally like to cook at your house? Uh, I buy meat from H-E-B really? uh, because all the meat at the grocery stores starts on a small family ranch somewhere in the United States. So that idea that somehow buying from a farmer's market means that you're supporting local, it certainly does, but you're still supporting local when you buy a grocery. H-E-B in particular has an incredible meat program. The head of their meat department, he can walk into a store and look at like their steaks and say, Oh, that came from this ranch outside of here, and he supplies us with X amount of head a year. Good guy. He's got three kids. Like, they're really super connected um, to where their stuff comes from. Um, Part of the issue when you're talking about smaller gay meats as well is there's not always a correlation in between 
it, it depends what quality is to you. So, so for a lot of people, it's like when you consider a steak, do you want the best quality from a culinary perspective? Are you looking for something that's regenerative agriculture? Um, for example, uh, grain-fed actually has lower greenhouse gas emissions than grass-fed, but people perceive grass-fed to be more natural, which it is in some ways. Um, I, I, I think a lot of it is people making decisions motivated by a, a lack of a, a full comprehension on what all of their choices actually mean. Yeah, that's an interesting conversation because the each it, it gets into a, like a political talk, I guess. But there's the beliefs on each side that you know regenerative meat is. Uh, sequesters more carbon is, is better for the environment. And then there's the, the argument for, uh, I guess, factory farming or conventional farming is better for the environment. So I don't know. I, there's a study, you can find a study for every side of the argument. So it's, it's kind of tough as an average consumer. It's tough to, you know, make those conscientious choices. Well, all the, the point is that beef in general is, is, a cyclical, um, as it relates to at least carbon emissions, it all sort of has the, the same effect. Certainly in terms of like um, uh, sustainable grazing, that's a little bit different. But the methane that cattle emit actually converts to carbon dioxide in about 12 years. And that carbon dioxide can then obviously be used by plants, the carbon is sequestered and, and the cycle continues. So the idea is that anywhere in the meat or beef life cycle, you still have a full circle. Whereas for example, with transportation and using fossil fuels, that's a one way. Mm. So we're, we're not bringing that in in any way. No, absolutely. So back to your seasoning, you started off with, um, with one and I mean, what did you start off in your head with, I'm going to make this to sell it? Or was it just kind of having fun because you enjoyed cooking? Yeah, it was more like, it was more, I know I don't want a restaurant. So how do I, how do I let people taste what I think a steak should taste like beyond just trying my recipes? That was the first incarnation of it and then i had this idea to use activated charcoal in the seasoning which was kind of really hot in healthcare products or health food products rather at the time so like activated charcoal toothpaste and shakes and things like that and i'm like i don't i don't think it does anything for you magically but how cool to treat it sort of as a meat cosmetic because a lot of people including myself when we get into cooking meat you want a really aggressive sear. If you don't know the little tips and tricks, you can often end up overcooking the meat to try and get that crust. And so the hardcore carnival black rub helps prevent that because it already sort of gives it this incredible black appearance before it's even been cooked. And so I earnestly just thought I, I got some quotes on taking my recipe and kind of producing it in a facility, what the minimums would be. And I thought, uh, it's a little risky but it's doable and if it all goes wrong i guess i could just give out the bottles of samples i don't know <laughs> um and here we are you know six seven years later we're stopped with number one best-selling black rub in australia um we're in sweden uh old scandinavia ireland uk uh canada mexico brazil it's incredible yeah i know it's it's everywhere how did you come up with the name and do you get 
um, kind of blasted on on social media by like the vegan community for for calling it hardcore carnivore, especially with the the carnivore community. I feel like that diet has, I mean, it, it's taken off, right? Everyone's doing the the carnivore diet these days. So, do you kind of get uh, washed in with that crowd too, or what does that look like for you? The name was honestly just as, as simple as like, you know, I, I knew obviously I was performing. I feel like I was promoting a carnivore lifestyle not in the diet sense, just people who love eating meat. Technically, obviously, we're omnivores, but, you know, it was just like, oh, yeah, great, this rhymes, what a fun little thing. Um, And I was an early adopter of social. I had started to describe myself as that, and it just made sense to call the seasoning that since it was intended for meat. Um, I really don't get much blowback from vegans. I don't know if they just stay in their lane or if everyone's just kind of sick of hearing from them. But (laughs) (laughs) um, I had had it in the past where, unfortunately, I got sort of spammed all at once. They sort of sick their uh, network onto you, but it hasn't happened in years. But I do get, unfortunately, a little confusion from the carnivore diet crew, which is I want anyone who will potentially enjoy the seasoning to be able to use it. Um, but it is not designed with a diet in mind. So, for example, some of our flavors have a little bit of sugar in them because with certain sweet barbecue flavors, you want sugar in there. And just when it comes to food in general and, from again, from a culinary gastronomy perspective, you want balance in your, in your flavors. So we talk about balancing the salt with the sweet, with the heat. So some of them have a little bit of sugar in there just to give a more well-rounded, complete flavor profile. And we actually came out, like Hardcore Carnivore as the brand existed prior to the rise of the carnivore diet. So unfortunately, it's a little frustrating that every now and then someone who's on the carnivore diet will just assume that that's what we're about, even though we've never marketed ourselves to the diet in particular. Um, But we also have other folks who are on the diet who totally get that we're just a brand with a cool name and they really um, love the product and use it as suits them. I love what you, what you have on your website. And I forget the verbatim message of it, but you don't want to, it's something to the effect of you don't want to overtake the, the taste of the meat. You just want to enhance it. And I appreciated that. Like that's, that, that, that speaks to, to me as a consumer that makes me want to buy the seasoning, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the motto, right, to enhance the meat without overpowering it because at the end of the day, you, you want to taste the meat, not the seasoning. <laughs> uh, I think that historically a lot of seasonings that we sort of grew up eating, um, like your Montreal, you know, they're pretty big, intense flavors, and, and you're tasting those more so than just like a little enhancement of the meat flavor itself. So um, I'm more for, you know, animal fat is delicious, and we should be able to taste it uh, by itself. So that's what I kind of aim towards. I saw a video where you you put the like the tomahawk steak directly on the fire. I don't know if it was charcoal or if you were using wood, but um, I've always wanted to try that, but I just don't have the guts to try. It. I'm afraid I'm gonna do something wrong. So, what are some methods that is that how you normally cook, or is I mean it's always different, I assume. But man, I I just I've seen people do that, and I want to try it, but I'm I'm too chicken shit to try it. <laughs> no, that you shouldn't be chicken. It's always fun to experiment with new things. Um, so there's two different things, but I think in this case you're talking about what we call the caveman method, which is literally to put it on top of char- charcoal, whether that's briquettes or charcoal from natural wood. 
Um, I've done one video on that just as an example, but it's actually not a preferred way to cook. It's a wonderful option if you're out at a campsite, you maybe don't want to take as much equipment with you because you can cook that way. But from a like best practice kind of perspective in terms of getting the best result, if you think about it, fire needs oxygen to really breathe. So if you're going to slap a cold piece of meat directly on the coals, what you're going to do is really bring that temperature down. So the first mistake people make when they're cooking that caveman style is they often flip the meat right back onto the area that they just had it, which means that mm. second slide is not going to get anywhere near as aggressive a sear. But really, you want that space between the coals or the fire and your meat so that that airflow can happen, so you get that really rich concentration of heat energy and can really get a nice sear. So it's possible and it's doable um, and it looks impressive. Like I'm sure so much of the stuff we see on the internet <laughs> that's like, that looks sick, but maybe it's not the most practical thing. Yeah. That's uh, that's the caveman method, I think. You, I, I think what turns me off about, not turns me off, but what makes me scared of it is I, you have to clean all that stuff off before you cook it, right? You can't like wash it, obviously, but you got to, you got to scrape it off. Like what if you eat one of the coals or something? That's what goes through my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Most of it will actually fall off. There's very few pieces that will adhere. Um, You can just sort of brush it with a pair of tongs on either side and that'll do it. And, you know, as far as getting sick, it's an organic material that has effectively been sterilized by the fire itself. So Mm. nothing, it's not going to harm you. Yeah. Oh. Unless you accidentally swallow a wasp or something. <laughs> like a whole charcoal piece or something. Um, <laughs> how many cookbooks do you have out? So you were a, a, a cookbook author before the seasoning, or was it kind of like a symbiotic thing? It was about the same time. So we had Black had come out when I was writing the cookbook already. Um, so I have one cookbook right now also called Hot for Fun for, And that was actually a funny story because – The publisher did not want me to use that title for the book. Um, Again, like the seasoning had only been out six months, so there wasn't like a huge brand recognition behind it. And we had this whole conversation at the time that we were talking about what to call the book when they're like, okay, so 80% of cookbook purchases are female, including like buying for men at holiday time or Father's Day or whatever it is. And we're just really worried that the word hardcore is going to deter them. And I'm like, but I'm a, I'm a woman author. So, and then by the end of it, thankfully, cause it takes, you know, it takes a couple months to write a book. Um, by the end of it, they're like, okay, that's clearly the best name for it. So what was your creative process behind the book? Was it, I mean, you just taking normal recipes that you cooked every day um, from your own life or did you kind of set time aside every day or weekly and, and come up with these new recipes? What did your creative process look like? It was definitely like a fully immersed, obsessed with thinking about ideas. And then of course the recipe testing, cause it's, it's extremely important. Um, you, you know, from two reasons, one, cause you kind of have to get the recipes right. And two, cause you kind of have to get the recipes right. Like if you buy my cookbook and my recipes fail you, you're not going to trust anything that I have to say, you know? So um, it was really just like an all-encompassing process of thinking about flavors and ideas and pairings and putting that all together for for a really intense three-month period, I would say, was the really like, 
full on focus. That's that's pretty quick though. Three months for I mean to gather the information for a book that seems like it was pretty quick. It, it is, but I mean that's in terms of not just the sort of like oh take notes here or there. I mean the full on slog of mm, thing. Yeah. What is your favorite recipe in that book? Oh my gosh! You know it's been so long since I wrote it. Um, I don't know if I can pick just one. I split it into different sections by protein. Um, and there's also like foundations and finishes, so sauces, glazes, things like that. Uh, and a few side dish options too. And I find myself sort of picking back and forth from them. I still reference it. Um, I'm in awe of people, even though I've been recipe developing and, and you know, creating online recipes for so long. I, I need it. I need it next to me to, to remember quantities. Like <laughs> there's so many that I need to constantly re reference them. Um, there's a, there's a great pickle brine chicken nugget recipe in there that mm. uses cornflakes for crumbs. That was sort of the way my grandma used to do it, which is delicious. Um, some great chimichurri recipes in there. There's beef, like pretzel stuff, hamburger, cheese, pretzel stuff, buns and, um, lamb pastrami there's just so many it was also really important to me i didn't want to make it exclusively a grilling book i wanted it to be a meat book so there's a variety of techniques some smoking some grilling some oven some frying it i think it, i wanted it to be more functionally useful yeah it sounds like it covers everything have you been surprised by people who like take your recipe and maybe uh, change up something and, and send you that and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. Have you been surprised by anybody kind of modifying the recipes a little bit? Um, you know, I don't know if I see that as much. Um, I, I always, I just love to see that people, you know, I love to get tagged in it and, and just see that it's being useful to people. It's it's quite a responsibility, a responsibility and an honor to be sort of be trusted to feed someone's family in that respect. You know, you talked about how you weren't brave enough to do a tomahawk. Well, I'm still asking people to go and spend X amount on their grocery bill to make this recipe and then hope that their children don't tell them that it's disgusting and refuse <laughs> to eat it. So there, there is a sort of humbling element there too. Yeah, that's got to feel real special because if they're cooking a recipe from your cookbook or they're, they're watching you on Instagram – and they're yeah. they're taking your you know your advice. They're obviously saying your name and and you know referring to your methods in the kitchen. So that's got to be a humbling experience. It is. It is. Like I said, it's it's just it's very it's a very personal thing to ask someone to spend their money not just on the book but to then start investing in the recipes themselves. So. I, I get jazzed anytime I see anyone, like whether it's from the cookbook or whether it's just from a recipe I've posted online, like tell me that they've made it. One guy in Australia um, bought the book and did every recipe in the book. Like yeah. that was his thing. Um, that, and, and I think that that's great in a way too. Like if you're going to make the investment in a cookbook, use the dang recipes. You yeah, know? right. That's like buying a CD but only listening to one song or something. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you don't get the full experience. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your favorite form of, of creativity? Is it the seasoning aspect or is it more cookbooks? Like what do you enjoy doing most? I just, honestly, more than anything, I just like staying busy with things that I'm passionate about. So there's so many different little avenues in what I do 
Um, obviously, Hardcore Carnivore is one aspect of it. It's literally running a company and doing things like R&D and approving labels and what do we want, you know, the branding and marketing to look like and, and logistical headaches and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And that's one side of it. And then I've got the creator side of things where I'm constantly thinking of um, videos to film. And, and I like to do a lot of meat myth busting. And again, I mentioned that sort of useful aspect. So explaining to people like common misconceptions about meat or doing recipes. And then that's a whole thing as well. And then I do speaking engagements and demos all over the country and um, and I'm also finishing off a meat science graduate course at Iowa state. So, wow, that's awesome. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on, but it's so nice to be able to do what I love. Yeah. I saw one of your videos where you were talking about the, I'm using air quotes here, the blood inside steak. So I eat my, my steaks medium rare in my family, which it, it, it like irks me. They, they cook <laughs> their steaks like. Like you basically might as well be eating jerky. Like you like eat char off of a tire, cook the tire, eat the tire because you're not eating a steak. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What is, what is the quote unquote blood that's coming out of a steak whenever it's cooked medium rare? Uh, so the thing that gives meat its color is a protein called myoglobin. It's, it's related or similar, at least in name to hemoglobin, which we're familiar with in our blood, but it's not, it, it, it's separate. Um, so it's literally just a colored protein. And when you have that water come out of your meat, or often if it's in vacuum seal, that liquid, it's literally just water from inside the meat because meat is made up of 75% water and that protein that's giving it color. Mm. So it's not blood. It's not blood. <laughs> is, it, it's not blood. is it as important to let your meat rest as people say it is? Personal preference. So you have to think of them. Meat is muscle. It's it's muscle that has been converted to meat. Um, and and when we expose it to heat, it contracts. And when it contracts, it pushes those muscle fibers closer together. And as you can see, you know, when you like take your your fingers and knit them together. There's space in between them, but when you push them closer together, there's no space. So there's usually water that exists in that space. So when the muscle contracts, it's pushing that water to the very edges of the muscle mm. um, muscle uh, fibers. And then if you were to cut into it before that water can redistribute, you lose a lot of the juice. Whereas when you let it rest, the muscle can relax after contracting. Those spaces open up again, the water redistributes. You sort of end up with a juicier bite. However, when we do that, um, you are obviously not going to eat a piping hot steak because you've let it rest. And that's why I say it's personal preference because for some people, the idea of eating it really hot is more important than it being juicy. Mm, yeah, I always assumed that if you let it rest, that it got juicier. So I, I think I, it sounds like I was right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> what um, if, if there's somebody... Like the, you know, the, the pandemic brought on a lot of challenges for people that, that normally didn't cook. So did you see a rise in people maybe reaching out to you to try to learn how to cook during the pandemic um, versus before and after? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there was always an interest in recipes and food blogs prior to the pandemic, but I think there was a twofold kind of reaction from the pandemic. The first was that 
people were forced to stay at home and replace all of their takeout and restaurant meals with cooking at home options. So they start really looking for information on how to cook, how to cook different things, diversity, mixing it up. And then there was the sense that we were also isolated for a period of their period there. How can we kind of reconnect as a sense of community? So we saw that happen too. What's your, your go-to meat for someone that's not savvy in the kitchen or savvy on the grill? Is there a method or meat that you're like, okay, this is what you should try first because it'll build your confidence up. You know, I don't think there's too much that's prohibitive. Brisket is difficult. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. That's not a one-on-one thing. But there's a, like prime rib, for example, which seems really uh, intimidating because it's so expensive. is one of the easiest things to cook, mm. honestly, um, especially if you're going to smoke it. So um, when it comes to steak, I'm a big uh, pusher of a method called just keep flipping. Um, that's another thing we hear that can be really intimidating. What? Like, I thought you weren't supposed to flip. Well, you know, who who said? You're blowing, right? my, like, you're, you're blowing my mind, Jess. You're blowing my so, mind. <laughs> and that's just how I started cooking from experience. I ended up teaching myself to grill and and I started off using a method called reverse sear, which is where you just cook it really low and then you finish with a hot sear. And it's a really great way of getting a very precise finish from edge to edge. But... I found myself like reverse here takes a long time. It can take up to an hour for like a one inch thick steak. So I found myself kind of, I'll just start it over direct heat and I'll just keep moving it. So it doesn't overcook. And I kept flipping and I kept flipping and I'm like this steak is ready in 10 or 15 minutes and it's got a killer crust on it. And I did not have to wait an hour. So, is- so it's just how I naturally started to cook. And you realize that, that crust that we look for on steaks, which is called the Maillard reaction, that happens the drier the surface is. So even though when you constantly flip, yeah, okay, the first time you flip it, it's not going to look that impressive. But when you keep going, you will develop that crust over time. So can I tell my dad he's full of crap that it's okay to flip the burgers? What about burgers? Like you're only supposed to flip once for the burgers. Is that a myth too? (laughs) No. So burgers are a little bit of a different story because – when we talk about just keep flipping, we're talking about trying to meet perfect doneness, right? So like, how do we keep it perfect, medium rare, but that get that crust? Because if I wasn't going to flip and I just left it on one side for 10 minutes and then flipped to the other side for 10 minutes, I would get a serious crust, but I would also get that gray band coming in. But with burgers, um, technically speaking, you should cook a burger closer to well done um, because it's not sterile on the inside. So the fresher mm. the burger is, the lower your risk is. But theoretically, for ultimate food safety, you're supposed to cook those burgers the whole way through mm. so and not have them pink in the middle. Um, so because of that, you don't have to be as as fanatic about flipping them. So what you're saying, sterile on the inside. So if the meat it d- doesn't get contacted in the middle by outside elements then it's rem- so how does it remain sterile how, how do the how does the bacteria only stay on the outside the bacteria doesn't make its way naturally in the middle no so i mean it's not lab sterile it's like effectively sterile so mm. the bacteria is only on the the surfaces that have been exposed to the air so that doesn't count for things like toxins or uh so for example if you've got mold 
um, that can make its way into the meat. It doesn't count for things like parasites, which you won't see in beef in America. It's just not what's happened with our food safety systems. Um, that's why it's also really unhelpful. You know, I just got tagged in a video today on TikTok where um, a, 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 an MD, I guess, had said, you know, responded to a video of someone pulling parasites out of tuna. And worms in fish is super, super common. Worms in beef in the United States, nearly non-existent, if at all, because of our food safety practices. And she's like, you know, well, you always take a risk when you eat meat. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're, you're technically correct. Like you take a risk every side, every time you walk outside your house, because an asteroid might fall on you. Like, yeah, okay, it's possible. But the reality of that happening for anyone in the United States that's watching that is like ridiculously low. So to tell people that who uh, consumers who are already really, really scared and unsure is just damaging. Well, that almost sounds like she was pushing a narrative. Like those kind of people, it could be on the carnivore side or like the vegetarian side, but that almost sounds like she was pushing, you know, like a vegetarian or vegan narrative. Almost. Well, here's the funny part. Historically, that might have been true. These days, not at all. It's just sensationalism. So because of the way that social media is geared now, it wants to reward views and engagement. So if you can make something that is just going to be liked or seen or interacted with by more people, people then you'll do it so she may be neither a vegetarian nor a hardcore meat eater but she's like oh this is great i'll get lots of clicks on this video um that's what that that might have been the motivation right there if nothing else you know Mm, yeah social media is so damning it's it can be so positive but for exactly the reason you said it's it's also a negative uh, Debbie Downer place. With you creating content, how do you balance that? Do you put a lot of focus on, you know, posting information on specific days, or do you just every now and then just need a break from Instagram and TikTok? How do you balance your life like that? So I've never taken a break in terms of. I don't think in the past couple of years I've ever missed like. There's been at least one post a week. Um, sometimes I'll go quiet on stories just because, you know, there'll be so much going on that I won't you know, just have opportunity to post something or think to open my phone and share. But I think it's also a personal thing. So at the end of the day, you know, I have to enjoy being on there. Um, and I, for me, I want to put out content that's useful. I don't want to just put out content for entertainment's sake. So I like putting out most content that has a, an informational or educational piece behind it. Um, but yeah, like sometimes I'll make like, I, you know, do some Australian jokes sometimes or, <laughs> you know, just kind of goofy stuff just because that's me just wanting to enjoy my account, you know, and enjoy my time online. So I have to, this is a, a way off topic, but during the pandemic, I feel like Australia got a bad rap for a lot of stuff that was going on during the pandemic, there was talks of concentration camps or camps likes going on during COVID. It was that true or is that, is that false? I don't know if you have any insight on that. Yeah. I mean, all of my family still lives in Australia. There were no concentration camps. Why? I mean, why did that even become a thing? Why, why would people say that then? There was a lockdown, a very, very extreme lockdown compared Mm. to the U S and there was also mandatory quarantine. But the difference is Australia has always been, I guess you would call it more of a nanny state. 
So we didn't grow up with, we have a constitution. It's obviously different from the US constitution. So that there's just like, it's just a different attitude. I can't say that I don't know many people who enjoyed the extent of that lockdown. But for example, if you talk on your cell phone in Australia and you get caught, it's not like a $200 or $500 fine. It's like a $5,000 fine. Oh, wow. It's like a, hey, we're not, we're not fucking around. <laughs> like, damn. What's happening? And people, we, we're Australians are used to it. So they just kind of deal with it. Whereas Americans would probably have more of a, you can't charge me that much. That's ridiculous kind of attitude because that's how you guys grew up, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, it's just, it's just different. So the Australia was, it, it's an island. They were doing what they thought was the right thing to try and help um take care of the disease but then unfortunately it just swung too far the other way they were successful like in 2020 when we were all at christmas time 2020 when america was like in absolute crisis still mm -hmm. australians were in bars and pubs because for three months they had successfully kept it out with a really strict quarantine but then when Delta happened and, and that sort of plan started to crumble that would be from an outsider's perspective I think if they had been able to to start loosening up the restrictions a little more once they saw that they weren't being as effective, I think that probably would have held them in good stead, you know? Yeah, it's amazing the, the uh, I hate to use the word misinformation, but the, the wrong information that, you know, even us Americans that are considered free, we sometimes we just don't get all the entire story from whatever that's going on in the world. So it's always nice to talk to somebody that that's has family there that ex has experienced something, um, to be able to re relate to. So I appreciate that. Sure. So what's, uh, what's some of the next projects that you have coming up, Jess? Oh man. Uh, we just brought out a Turkey kit for Thanksgiving and every year we release a limited edition fried Turkey seasoning. Um, it doesn't have to be for fried Turkey. It's just, garlic jalapeno and sage flavor um and it uh it goes really well so um always in r&d for hardcore carnivore trying to figure that out you know and get options there um i've got um some fun trips to cattle conventions early next year i'll be back in australia for a meat um like meat festival in march nice. and you know just just Lots of filming, lots yeah. of sharing. Just there's always something to do. Do do you do all the editing and stuff yourself, or do you have a team to help you? I do the editing myself. Um, sometimes I work with with a team. Um, That's a lot, but, Jess. Know, I think I'm just a I'm a little bit of a control freak, and I know how I want it in my head. It's <laughs> not <laughs> so like I'll just do it myself, and then you know take on the next project. Yeah, like, don't worry, I'll just take care of it, and then before you know it, you've got like a pile like this of a to-do list. Well, yeah, you have a, a crap load of video content. So I was, I would, I was just assuming that you had someone helping you, but if you manage, you know, even us doing the podcast, it's, huh? it's a pain managing that, you know, editing ourselves. So you're doing your Instagram stuff or your TikTok stuff and the YouTube. That's a lot, a lot to manage. Not alone. I mean, not even forgetting the, the business side of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a lot, but Again, the, the variable is just I'm passionate about it and it's my own business. So I think that luckily that's a real driving force. What, uh, I mean, this is a little behind the scenes, but what kind of equipment do you use for filming? 
I'm really just my iPhone because same thing, like hmm. I've got a Canon camera that I use for YouTubes. I just don't do YouTubes that often because there's just so much more that you can do in that 16 by nine vertical format now that I can barely justify the idea of producing content just for YouTube. So I film on my iPhone and I edit in Final Cut Pro. I find that easiest. Yeah. No, that's in, man. I, I was guessing that you had a legit like DSLR or, or mirrorless uh, camera because your videos look so good. Thank you. It's I a- do. I mean, I have a Canon DSLR and I have a mirrorless as well, but at the end of the day, like the phone is just built to be so friendly for that. You know? Yeah. No, it's amazing what you can do. Yeah. It's amazing what you can do with a phone. How long did it take you to get comfortable with editing and adding, you know, intros and outros and, and all that stuff? Um, I think it's always a work in progress to be honest with you, because the goalposts are always changing for what that content looks like. Um, you know, reels were non-existent a couple of years ago, a year ago. Um, I was doing them every now and again because it was either like super long format videos where you went really into detail on things. Uh, and then obviously TikTok changed all that. And then it became from a very sort of presentary style to the more natural you can be, the better. And so now I've sort of settled into this format of just a really high paced, like, quick cuts, quick starts to the next part, no pauses, you know, they call that the millennial pause. <laughs> um, and it, it just, it changes, it changes and it's dynamic, like, like the internet. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I have to ask you about your, uh, your opinions on, on pellet grills. When they first kind of hit the market, I, I talked so much crap about them. Because uh, I was like, that's ah, the cheat way. I, you know, you need to stoke your fire and stand outside by it. But then I, I had some cooking from it. My, my buddy had one, and I was like, okay, this, this tastes pretty good. So, is there a preferred method? Do you like the pellet grill over conventional barbecuing, or what are your thoughts? Um, so I used to be like that as well, and it's kind of like trying to be a hero for no reason. It's like saying the only way to drive a car is stick, and now literally every – I don't even know if you can order stick anymore unless you're ordering a race car, right? So it's just it, – it, it. the difference is the nature of our lives have changed so rapidly. Um, you can see it with cars. You can see it with, with uh, digital media. And it's the same. I, I think the best tasting barbecue comes off an offset. I think the craft of barbecue is to learn to cook an offset, learn to control the heat through changing your airflow. But I think reasonably with how busy we are in our everyday lives, throwing something on a pellet grill, knowing your temperature is going to be guaranteed. In most cases, I've cooked on some pellet grills in my time, like when I'm at events and they supply it rather than the brands I'd rather work with where – you know, you'll think you'll set it to 275 and you come back and it's 450. Yeah. Like, hey. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> the idea of just being able to set and forget and 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 know that you're going to have a really nice meal at the end of it, it's basically like a glorified crock pot but with better results, you know, like more fun results. But, like, we don't shit on people for using crock pots because we understand that they have a time and a place. Like, not everyone can sit around and, braise short ribs in in the traditional way for five hours when you can just throw it in the crock pot and not have to constantly pay attention to it. No. Yeah. I fully agree. I, I had a couple of my uh, pit bosses 
not a couple of them, but I had one of them. I threw a brisket in, came back inside, went outside like an hour later, and the thing was on fire. Like the whole thing was engulfed in fire. So I was like, I sprayed water on it. Not a lot, but I sprayed it, and then I called Traeger, and they were like, well, you're not supposed to spray water on it. I'm like, well, how the hell am I supposed to get the fire out? What am I supposed to do? Just let it burn? <laughs> like, so. oh, yeah, then that's yeah. you got to have fire hydrants with proper retardant in them for, for that kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah, grease fires can happen in offsets as much as pellet grills too, but um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a hazard. Yeah. Well, Jess, I appreciate the time. I know you're very busy. How can people follow you and buy your cookbook and, and all those great things? You can find me on all the socials under at Jess Priles, J-E-S-S-P-R-Y-L-E-S. Um, you can also find Hardcore Carnivore on all the socials as well. And hardcorecarnivore.com is where you get the seasonings in the book. And you can even write a little note at checkout and I'll personalize it for you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jess. I appreciate your time. And uh, we'll tag you up whenever this is, uh, this is available. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan. It was really nice talking to you. Yep. Thanks. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye.